The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to ask you to think of a love song. Just imagine for a moment, what is the first song that comes to your mind? What is the first song, love song, that you imagined? Perhaps it's the one that you danced to at your wedding. Perhaps you're considering a song that uh, you heard this morning on the radio. Perhaps you're thinking of one from your favorite romantic comedy. Or maybe you're thinking about one that, if you're so lucky, somebody originally wrote for you. But regardless of which songs that you choose, uh, there's literally millions to pick from, I, I don't know exactly which one it might be, but I can, I can make a few guesses about it. And my main guess would be that it's nothing like what we're going to hear from today in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5 is written as a love song from God to the people of Judah. But I assume that the love song that you're thinking of does not come to a conclusion by calling armies from foreign nations to come destroy the one to whom he is singing. Most of the time we think of love songs, we don't consider them this way. Isaiah 5 is indeed a love song from God to the people of Israel and Judah. But this song that is being sung, where we see that there's a melody of love, there is a harmony of destruction. God's people are prone to wonder. God's people are prone to leaving the God they love. But God is serenading these people. He is wooing them to return to a right relationship with Him. So as we will see, the, the Israelites are going to reject the area of the Lord. But what I'm going to ask now is that you would join me as I pray that today as we hear these words, that we would respond in a very different way than the people of Israel responded. Let's pray. God, we are immensely blessed that you would give us your word. We pray, Lord, that today as we gather around it, encircle the Bible, that you would teach us, Lord, that as we sit at your feet, you would declare to us your truths. God, I ask that this morning my words would be accurate, they would be clear, they would be understandable, that they would be compassionate and passionate. And Lord, I ask that those who are hearing would not only hear with human understanding, with human reason that is cursed by the fall. Lord, I ask that you would give us the ability to have ears to hear and eyes to see what you are saying to your church. God, we ask this morning that there would be an immense growth in our heart, a growth of love for Jesus, and therefore a growth in obedience as well. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who were here last week, you'll know I typically preach from an iPad. Last Sunday, as I was preaching the uh, first service, the iPad went black and said that it was overheated and needed to be put in the shade to cool down. So I'm going back to the old school, traditional paper notes. Isaiah 5 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, 
but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than, than that that I have done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is marched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, their bows are bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, 
Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will, growl, they will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkness, darkened by its clouds. This is the word of the Lord. That's the most important thing that you will hear all day. This anthem that God is singing to his people is really much more of a ballad than it is a modern-day chorus. And it's long, it is detailed. As you just heard, there are many metaphors representing the destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem. So our approach today is going to basically be to summarize the main points of what's going on here. And being that we're already outdoors, I'm going to attempt to do this in a rapid and timely manner while we still have the shade. So here's our approach. Point number one, God planted a good vineyard. Point number two, it produced bad fruit. Point number three, God planted a good vine. Point number four, it produces good fruit. Let's begin with point one, God planted a good vineyard. Let's first acknowledge at the, at the very outset that there's a lot of imagery at play. And we need to understand and ensure that we comprehend that imagery before we move too far forward. Verse 7 reveals exactly who God is singing to here. It says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. The initial six verses here function as a poetic condemnation of Israel and of Judah. And the imagery is one with the people that the people would readily understand. The Israelites were masters at viticulture. They knew exactly how to produce an ideal crop of grapes. They perfected various forms of irrigation and harvesting techniques that resulted in some of the finest fruit in the world. And they worked hard to ensure that there was a good harvest, harvest each and every season. They would protect their vineyards with fences and guardhouses. They would prune them only during the full moon so that the sap would be thicker. There's a million things that they would do that I don't even comprehend or understand. But they got it. They knew that this was a good vineyard in choice property. They understood well when God declares that he has done everything necessary to make this crop produce a yield of righteousness. He had cleared the land of all the enemies before them, just as a planter must first remove stones. He had built up defenses for Israel with their natural borders and their fortified cities that had been inherited from the conquest. They got stuff they didn't even have to work for. They just came in and took over. Just as a vineyard needs water to live, so God had provided them with his own word. He delivered to them divine self-revelation. They had everything necessary to produce an abundant crop of God-centered worship. The Lord had set them up for generations of righteousness to be lived out before the world. So point number one, God planted a good vineyard. But point number two, it produced bad fruit. Have you ever wondered why we need farmers? I mean, really, why in the world do we need those guys? I mean, stuff just grows out of the ground, doesn't it? Stuff just pops up because God invented seeds. Yes, they do, but we just need to understand that we can't just randomly go back to being a foraging society who simply eats plants that we discover in the ground. The answer is simple. Wild fruits are rarely very good for food. Just consider your own backyard. We're growing a garden back in our yard. Well, we have to work hard to make that produce anything edible. Naturally, it produces things that are not good to consume. 
Farming is a very important part of our lives. People work very hard to cultivate and reproduce only the best of the best so that every crop is better than the one before. Last Saturday, I was here with some of the guys working on the, the grounds to make sure that they were usable. After not coming here for about a month, the place was a jungle. So I, I want to really thank those guys that came out to help, uh, Dante and Henry and Mike Langevin and the, the whole our new crew and Cornell and Steve and Jay. You guys did a really good job working this ground. You made it look excellent. Uh, but as we were working, I found a wild strawberry plant back against the fence. And it had one little tiny strawberry, one little itty bitty red piece of fruit. And guess what? I ate it. <laughs> I picked it and it was about the size of my pinky finger, bright red, it was definitely ripe. It tasted terrible, absolutely awful. I could buy even the worst strawberry at the grocery store would taste better than that. And why? Because they cultivate them, they work on them to make sure that they are good. Wild fruit is representative of being good for nothing. Later in Jeremiah, it will ask the question, what is a good, what is a fruit tree worth if there is no fruit? And the answer is, it is a weed to be plucked. God says that he was looking for good fruit, but he found only wild grapes instead. What a disappointment. So what will God do? We read in verses five and six. He says, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Now, obviously, this is not an average farmer. This is not old McDonald. Farmers don't command the rains. The, this divine condemnation is being made because of the wickedness of the people. Now, you've likely heard Matthew chapter 23 called the chapter of seven woes. Seven times Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You've probably heard that chapter referenced. I know I speak of it regularly. Isaiah chapter 5 might well be called the chapter of six woes. Here, he calls out the people of Israel on six separate occasions. In order to rapidly examine these six, I want you to first imagine that you're walking through a vineyard. I don't know if you've been to one or not. I know there are some here on the island. But imagine that you're walking through a vineyard and you're looking for some good grapes to consume. And as you look around, each time you go to one and you pluck a bunch of grapes, instead of being a delightful meal for you, the cluster is absolutely rotten and putrid and smells of death. It is moldy and gross and you have nothing to do but throw it onto the ground. Now imagine God as the farmer going through the fields and he is looking and seeing one, two, three, four, five, six separate clusters of grapes, each one rotten to their core. He is revealing that these people should be deeply sorrowful for their acts of self-condemnation. That's what the word woe means. It means great sorrow shall be upon you. Let's examine rotten cluster number one. Verse 8 says, Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. What is he talking about here? God is not against landlords or property development. This is a specific reference to the way that God had intentionally divided the promised land so that each family in Israel would always be cared for and would be able to build their own homestead. 
But there were some who ignored the commands of the Lord and they would buy out land from under those who were struggling and they would not return it on the day of Jubilee like they were commanded. Then they would create laws that would limit people from buying back their own property. Think of it as an ancient form of redlining. God was angry because he had provided for those Israelites and the Israelites themselves were undermining the good gift of the land. Rotten cluster number two. We find this in verse 11. It says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they might run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Last year, uh, I was, a man reached out to me. He was a self-professed drunkard. He said, I really need help. I really need Jesus. And I wanted to talk to you about Jesus. And he began explaining that he had an alcohol dependency problem. He was completely addicted. So I set up a meeting with him, but I also asked another brother to be there with me so that we might counsel this man in, in regards to his addiction. Well, as we were supposed to gather right here in the building behind me, uh, I waited and I waited and I waited and he never came. And the man next to me said, do you, do you think he just got the wrong time or date? Let's call him. So we called the individual and he was so slobbering drunk, he could barely form a sentence. He was absolutely consumed with alcohol. So a few days later, I let him sleep it off. I called him at about 10 o'clock in the morning to check in on him, see how he was doing, see if I could meet up with him to share the gospel with him. And as I was communicating, he was at 10 o'clock in the morning already so drunk that he could barely form a sentence. This is the kind of problem God is focusing on here with these people in Israel. They wake up and their first action is to go to alcohol. But please know it's not just drunkenness that's being focused on here. It's a desire to set your mind away from any of the troubles of the earth. He is speaking here about anybody who would go to food or alcohol. He continues on and speaks about music as a way to distract themselves and encourage themselves and make themselves feel good apart from looking at the reality of real life. And he explains that Sheol, meaning the grave, Will, will literally enlarge its appetite to consume them. I like the way that Alec Motyer explains this. In his commentary, he says, the irony here is biting. To satisfy their appetites was all that they lived for. But in the end, only one appetite is met. Only one mouth is filled. Of course, he's speaking about death itself, the grave. Self-satisfaction will only result in self-destruction. We see now rotten cluster number three in verses 18 through 19, which says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Now this is the most difficult to understand and probably most obscure of these six woes. It is referencing the growth of self-deception that occurs. So it begins by talking about a small cord, and then it's something that grows strong enough like a rope that can drag a cart. It's referencing a heart that questions God, demanding that he prove himself. Just give me a sign. Perhaps if you've shared the gospel very often in your life, you've encountered those who will respond in this way. I know that I've, I've spoken to people who have said, well, if God's real... Just show me. Just 
strike the ground with lightning and I'll believe you. Just give me a sign and then I'll trust that you exist. Just, if he just proves it, then of course I'll believe. Well, God has given every bit of evidence necessary. He has already given the Israelites everything they need to know him, to believe in him, and to follow after him. He has given them the, the commands and they're saying, well, if God really wants us to do something, why doesn't he just say so? Why doesn't he just give us some more information? Why doesn't he just tell us what to do? That's the kind of heart attitude that is being condemned here. Woe number four is probably the one that's most familiar to you. It's found in verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Let's face it, on some level, we're all guilty of this. On some level, we have all done this. Why do I say that? Because every time you sin, that is precisely what you are doing. You are declaring that the good way of the Lord is not enough for you, and that the evil way of the world is what is now good and what is best. We have all done this on some level, but here he's talking on a societal level not just about personal actions, but about a proclamation about what is moral and what is immoral, what is acceptable and what is not. Here what we see taking place is very similar to how we could consider the sexual revolution here in the United States. How did it first begin? By seeking to gain acceptance for immoral lifestyles. After acceptance, there's a demand for equality. And after equality, there was a seeking to destroy those who disagree or who view sinful actions as sinful. Evil good, good evil. So for the sake of young ears, I'm being intentionally vague here, but please understand that what we are seeing in our society right now with the degradation of morality is not new. This is cyclical. It takes place all throughout history. There is a revival for a society, and over the course of time, the society moves farther and farther away from the way that God has designed things to be. We are in a world that right now is experiencing self-inflicted confusion over the very nature of reality. Romans 1 calls it suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Although God has permitted this cultural devolving into chaos, He still hates it. He says to the people of Israel and Judah, I know what's going on with you. There is great wickedness that is growing amongst you. But I want you to know that I don't accept it. I have allowed it. I have permitted it. But I will judge you for it. So let me briefly encourage you to be sure that your thinking is governed properly. Everybody is vying for your mind. Everyone wants to teach you their own agenda. Please make sure that your agenda as a believer aligns with the agenda of our King. Please ensure that you are not governed by a political party or a pundit on the news or a movement of some sort to make all of your life and mindset agree with them. Every one of them will get it wrong. Be sure that you are building your life off of the Word of God. I really appreciate a tweet that was sent out by a pastor down in the Washington DC area named uh, Garrett Kell yesterday. He said, one of the most dangerous things a Christian can do right now is neglect Bible reading. Thousands of voices are attempting to convince you how to think. Be certain you are being shaped. More scripture, less social media. More Bible, less books. More prayer, less blog posts.
Amen to that. Woe number five is found in verse 21, and it says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Look, we will always go wrong when we assume that we are always right. I was, I, I was speaking to a person recently who is literally everything that he says, he is the hero of his own story. Every time he talks about an interaction with another individual, they are always wrong and he is always the one who corrects them. If you are always right in your own sight, then you are wrong. If you are always right in your own sight, you are a fool. God alone makes our path straight. Our fallen reason will always magnetically move us in the direction of a foolish path. We must look to the Lord for answers to see what is good and what is evil. Let us make our decisions based upon His declaration of right and wrong. Woe number six is found in verse 22, which says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Now the point here is not to repeat necessarily one or the other of the previous condemnations. Earlier he talked about drunkenness. Earlier he talked about uh, the removing of people's property rights. Here he's combining all of the previous five woes into one. And he is saying that these people are oppressing the poor, they are refusing them justice, while they feed the desires of their own flesh, which reveals they listen only to their own counsel and consider evil good and good evil. He is combining all of the woes into a singular declaration. So then God spends the rest of this song explaining the manner in which he is going to discipline the people with a foreign army. And you may think that this is all bad news. And you'd probably be right, at least at this point, because the people who were living did not hear and did not repent. And so God did raise up armies from foreign lands to come and conquer them. And he did, he did take them out of the land, but he had also made them a promise. There's good news hiding here, that he had guaranteed them redemption. He had made a covenant with them that he would send them a king who would restore all that was broken. So now I would like to point to John 15 to uh, come to point number three. God planted a good vine. Jesus says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now notice that with all of the other I am statements, Jesus has no need to put this qualifier there. He does not say I am the true good shepherd. He says I'm the good shepherd. He doesn't, he doesn't have to put this qualifier there for the others, but here he says, I am the true vine. In other words, there's a fake vine out there. There's one that is not going to produce righteousness and spirituality in you. And here he says, I am the true vine. Jesus is distinguishing himself as the fulfillment of all of the promises of Israel. God went to the same hill and he planted a plant, a true vine, one that would never produce wild grapes, one that instead would always produce righteousness. And Jesus is not only the true and better Adam, he is also the true and better Israel. He stands as the representative of that nation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is able to enjoy all of the privileges and promises of God's people. This is why God would explain that all who are saved are Israel in places like Romans chapter 9 and Galatians chapter 4. Jesus is the true vine, and he succeeded in every way that the people of Israel failed. 
all of those reasons for woe, Jesus had none of them. Yet, woe to him, for he was placed on a cross, and he was bearing the curse of sinful men, not for actions that he had done, but for actions that were placed upon him from people like you and me. Now, it's easy for us to point the finger at Israel and say, man, they were, they were horrible. These people were morons. They had everything. They had God's word. Why did they not listen? Well, look in the mirror, because every day you do the same. You know the truth, and you know it sets free, yet you continue on doing exactly what you know you should not do. I want you to see that the imagery here is so very beautiful. John 15 describes saved people not only as new plants that are planted in the vineyard of the Lord, but we are offshoots of the true vine himself, that we are born out of Jesus himself, that he is the vine, we are the offspring, we are the branches, our source of life, our source of spirituality, our source of vitality, it all flows to us from the true vine. Which brings us to point number four, the true vine produces good fruit. John 15 teaches us not only that we are supposed to bear fruit, but it teaches us how to do it. What does he mean by fruit in the New Testament era? What does he mean by bearing fruit? Well, let's just go to a couple of the quintessential verses in the New Testament. We think of Galatians, how it speaks of the catalog of virtues that we often call the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We think of the time that John the Baptist is speaking to the Pharisees and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus, before he died, spoke of the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we grow this fruit? John 15, 4 through 5 says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're not a Christian, you can make a lot of efforts towards being a better person, but you cannot produce worship that God desires. If you are not a believer, you can do nothing that pleases God. We must first be in the true vine before we can produce the righteousness that God desires. You will not produce godly thoughts or godly character unless you first come to the Lord for salvation. So if you are not a Christian and you are here today, please don't hear me say, Look at all those bad people. You are also a bad person. Just do better. That is not my message. Please hear me saying, look at those bad people. You are a bad person. You can't do better without Christ's redemptive work in your life. You must repent. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. Acknowledge that you have run and rebelled away from the Lord who has given you every good gift. That you have spurned him. That you have rejected his commands. You have taken everything that he has told you to do and flushed it down the toilet. And listen, you can't fix it. You can't go back and repair those broken commands. All you can do now is come before the feet of, of Jesus and say, I have sinned against you. Lord, I need your forgiveness. And bow before him and say, please, Lord, redeem me. Save me. Forgive me of my sin. And the promise is because of what Jesus did at the cross to pay for sin, that he will. He will not cast out anyone who comes to him. 
for forgiveness. So brothers and sisters who are here, I want to speak to you also for a minute. Those who have come to the cross for redemption, who have come to Jesus for forgiveness, those who are following after Jesus, fix your eyes on Him. Set your attention on Him. Follow after Him. These are all things that it means to abide in Him. The word abide simply means remain with. But it has this idea of delighting in Him to such an extent that you enjoy carrying out His will. Delight yourself in the Lord and you will carry out all of the deeds that He has commanded. So let me ask you, are you bearing good fruit? Abide in Christ and there will be an immense harvest from your life that will be undeniable. Let me now pray to that end. Lord God, we ask for every person here that they would be part of the true vine, that they would be a genuine and real branch that is produce, producing good fruit that is pleasing to you. Lord, I ask that when you come to this church and you set your eyes and attention here on us, Lord, that you would not come like you did to Israel, searching for good fruit and find nothing but rotten clusters. God, help us to be a good representation of your kingdom on earth. Help each individual here to follow after Christ by re uh, rejecting the rebellion that they had previously lived, rejecting the sin that is in their life by running to Jesus for forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we would be so much like you that the world would look to us and see a true society of people who love you and live rightly for you. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and what he has done at the cross. I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit to grow. Lord, I ask that each and every person here will be able to look back at this time next month and say, I have grown to be more like Jesus. May we produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.